This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said by Philip K. Dick. First published in 1974. Um, this is my first reading of it, which I am kind of shocked to say that was silly of me not to have read it earlier, considering how it's a very, very, very good novel. Um, me too. I would say, That's I was great. thinking about where I would place it. It's not It's not my favorite. I still think Galactic Pot Healer's way up there. Um, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for many others um, that we've talked about on this podcast, but I would say it's definitely in the top half. Um, and then I think I'd have to reread it uh, to say exactly where it goes, but it, it, there was a, a time when I was listening to it, I was thinking, hmm, this is mostly rambling here and i think that that might be necessary generally i don't think he's always necessary when he does that but i was thinking about also the the other style that i don't like that he does which is he he finds some hyper competent uh mechanic and then uh does a lot of plot shit that i don't care about and this is the opposite of that so i was thinking oh maybe this is actually a good thing <laughs> that it's so rambly because it has some rambly bits and and I was reading that uh, at one point the editors uh, wanted him to cut uh, one editor wanted him to cut a scene with uh, Rachel was not I was going to say Rachel Ray that's not her name uh, Ray whatever Ruth her, Ray Ruth Ray, Ruth Ray. Oh, there we go Ruth Ray um, because it was a bit uh, rambly and apparently. The stuff about loss? I mean, that's like yeah, yeah. the thesis of the book. Yeah. Um, and apparently there's a French publication uh, that's unredacted, which would be interesting because it's in French as well. But um, do you guys... Yeah, love speaking about it, just yeah. a little bit of a side on the editorial thing. Have you guys done Dr. Blood Money? I've read it. I don't know if we've done a podcast on it. Yeah, I think we I have. Yeah. Got a, a, I haven't got an answer on that, but there's definitely chap one chapter that's out of order. I talked about this on my mm-hmm. podcast when I talked mm-hmm. about blood money, and nobody fixed it in any like at any point. But I'm it doesn't make any sense where it is, even in like a Phil huh. Dick kind of wackiness. Mm-hmm. I think it's chapter four should be like chapter six. Mm-hmm. I remember you talking about set, that. It's actually events after the nuclear war that are said earlier, and I just wonder why no one ever saw that. No I feel like that's the kind of thing that I quite often think when I'm reading a Philip K. Dick book, like <laughs> this is out of order. And then it's all part mm-hmm. of, you know, it's because the universe time is bleeding into different things. And it's one of those things I probably read and was like, just run with it. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense <laughs> in that novel because mm. there's yep. no, it's, that's a much more linear story. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't yeah. always know that till the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah, don't really know what's we did do Dr. Blood Money. It was episode number 353, January 25th, 2016. Mm-hmm. It was you, me. It was you, you me, and uh, Marissa, Jesse. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was pre Evan. I think it was, it was, yeah. it was pre Evan. When did you start about- podcasting, Evan? This is 2016 as we, we did that. 2017. Was yeah, when that's I first what, did. That's yeah. what I found. Well, uh, you found 
half year later or something. Why yeah. start doing Philip Dix? Yeah, that was easy. Uh, an easy find. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was thinking about like, how, how good is this? Um, uh, I really liked it. And you were saying that it was a depressing book, kind of, I think on your podcast, your two hour show. I, I do show. think it kind of is. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, I mean, there's, there's hopeful elements in it. I think the, like Buckman's character and even like the Ruth Ray character, there are like glimmers of hope, but it doesn't have like the, I mean, I, I, I felt kind of feel down. The effervescence of some of the sixties novels. Yeah. You, it has, you don't have the humor yeah. or the, a lot of the wackiness. I really liked in the sixties stuff. So it's, yeah. it's more close to like, I, I think this has got a lot of overlap with uh, scanner darkly. You got the drug culture, you got mm. the, yeah. Uh, the police state stuff going on. The police, and that kind of he, police element. Stuff. Yeah. Is he writing these two at around the same time? Right, they're like back to back. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's one. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. one after the other. Um, uh, let's talk about the epilogue a little bit. <laughs> Start at the oh, end. Yeah. Um, yeah. One. What's kind of funny about that is I think it's it's there's a line, uh, I guess in the end of chapter or part three near the end of part three with Buckman talking about his plans. And he says, I'm going to get my son up from Florida and we're going to live happily ever after. He doesn't actually say happily ever after, but I think forever or something like that. And then, um, in the epilogue, he tells us exactly what happens to everything. Right. Um, and that's sort of my question is like, Hmm, why did he do it this way? And reading the notes on the Philip K. Dick fans page, um, what, what the note, you know, how it was constructed. Uh, I, I think you can look at it separate from that, but I was thinking, well, what was the effect of this? Cause he doesn't norm, as you point out, Evan, he doesn't normally do this. He leaves it open for us to interpretate, interpret what will happen after the, the plot finishes up but here he tells us what happens to everybody and, and everything that's like that's like my a, point is like a pistol or yeah. a stamp right yeah, it's <laughs> like, like what the heck so i think he's kind of making fun of the whole happily ever after concept um because the the nature that humans have in their relationship to storytelling and narrative right is is highly tied up in, I think, what Philip K. Dick is sort of best thought, best thinking about, which is, you know, his philosophical try to understand what mean, what is and what meaning is, um, what truth is, what is real, all that stuff. Um, here, you know, you, you point out it's about love. He points out it's about love, but, um, love, also fits in a context of, you know, who you're loving. And obviously yeah. he explores that throughout the book and the many, many different kinds of love that he explores with, uh, all sorts of different people and situations, the two main male characters. But the fact that there are objects of love, like actual physical objects that are non-human that are uh, that are collected and respected, right? Mm. And that's kind of silly. <laughs> He's saying, like, this is what happened to the gun. 
Oh, here, I'll just read that part. Someone at the Los Angeles Police Academy stole the twenty-two Derringer pistol, which Felix Buckman had kept in his desk. And, with the gun vanished forever, lead slug weapons had by that time become generally extinct except as collector's pieces, and the inventory clerk at the academy, whose job it was to keep track of the Derringer, assumed wisely that it had become a prop in the bachelor's quarters of some minor police official and let the investigation drop there. Why is that in there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, but 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 in and look at the last paragraph. I want to read the last paragraph here. Mm-hmm. The blue vase made by Mary Ann Dominic and purchased by Dreesen Tavener as a gift for Heather Hart wound up in a private collection of modern pottery. It remains there to this day. Question: Where is when? It, when is this today? And is much treasured, mm-hmm. and in fact, by a number of people who know ceramics, openly and generally cherished and loved. Right. So he's That's had that double ending. Right. right. Um, now, I think that this is important because even though it's silly that he's talking about these objects trying to have a, have their own ending, um, notice that, uh, it's the blue vase and the Derringer. It's very mm-hmm. specific items. And, and remember the relationship that the, the general of police and his sister have with philately, the stamp collecting, um, and that particular stamp that he uses as sort of a, a weapon to get her to do what he wants. Um, it's actually interesting because I think it does make sense to love particular objects <laughs> in some <laughs> respect. If you think about, especially s- things like pieces of art, like for example, the title where it's stolen from is that John Dowland, um, loot music. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because yeah. I think yeah, I think he actually gets mentioned in the book, doesn't he? Or maybe I read yeah, that. It's, it's in the it title. Wasn't a book, yeah, Buckman's yeah, a fan. Mm-hmm. So I think without without um, you know, if if you were to delete every copy of the lyrics and the I don't, I'm not a music guy, but the sheet music for it, right? And say this doesn't exist anymore, I think that that would be a bad thing. Um. I'm sure I could delete, you know, happily delete a lot of music and never, never be upset because I wouldn't know about it. But if, if I've, and this me, mean being a non music guy, I think if you hear that John Dowland music, uh, sung and played, um, you can see why Philip K. Dick loved it. And I've got the lyrics here. I thought I would read through it, not in the style that the, Ones you can hear on YouTube, but just as a uh, text. Um, and I think it's really interesting. He, doesn't he say in here it was the first um, abstract? I think that's what he said. Abstract. There it is. Um, so this is about midway through the novel. Moodily, General Buckman opened the third drawer of the large desk and placed a tape reel in the small transport he kept there. Dowland Aries, for four voices, he stood listening to one which he enjoyed very much, among all the songs in Dowland's lute books. For now left and forlorn I sit, I sigh, I weep, I faint, I die in the deadly pain and endless misery. The first man, Buck, Buckman, and he's got a fun name, Felix Buckman, right? The first man, Buckman mused, to write a piece of abstract music. He removed the tape, put it in the lute one, and stood listening to the Lacrimae Antique Pavan. 
And from this, he said to himself, at last, the, uh, the Beethoven's final quartet, final quartets and everything else except for Wagner. <laughs> so he's doing his, his music criticism thing, which he had been doing since he was a little kid. Um, dropping that into the characters' mouths, you know. Um, and it's in the title of the novel. So I'll just read Mm -hmm. the actual lyrics here. Flow my tears, fall from your springs, exiled forever, let me mourn. Where night's black bird her sad infamy sings, 
There Let Me Live Forlorn. So it's a very sad novel. You're picking that up. <laughs> sad poem. Down vain lights shine you no more. No nights are dark enough for those that in despair their last fortunes deplore. Light doth but shame disclose. It's like, don't turn on that light. I gotta be sad in the dark. Never may my woes be relieved since pity is fled and tears and sighs and groans my weary days, my weary days, of all joys have deprived. From the highest spire of contentment my fortune is thrown, and that's T-H-R-O-W-N, and fear and grief and pain for my deserts, for my deserts, are my hopes since hope is gone. Hark you, shadows that in darkness dwell, learn to con contemn, Light, happy, happy that they in hell feel not the words, world's despite. So very, very dark poem. Um, but also he says it's abstract. I don't think it's very abstract. I think it's pretty concrete. So what does mm -hmm. he mean? Yeah, obviously, uh, there's no particular yeah. person here. Right? It doesn't say who is doing what. Right? Someone is in the darkest of despair. And uh, given that love is tied up with death in at least, was it uh, Ruth Ray's speeches about the pets dying? Is that her? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and what Jason Tavener says, something like, um, better not to have a pet, better not to have a wife, <laughs> because they'll die. And then they get in talking about children. And if the relationship of a ch uh the love of a parent for a child is different than any other kind of love, and it's all one way. <laughs> and uh, And then better not to have a child, right, is the idea. And so if you keep cutting out love out of your life, uh, what, what is the purpose of it all? I, I think it's really interesting that he's almost tied up the meaning of life and reality, um, with love. And the, his solution is the only thing that's real is love, <laughs> something like that. And yeah. then he explores all the different kinds of that, including like that scene where you've got a 13 year old boy and a, some, much older adult man in bed together and the two cops standing over them as they pull the sheet off saying, you know, isn't this a crime? No, no, it's legal. If he's, if he's uh, in the age of consent, which is now 13 or something like that. Right. What? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So what, what, <laughs> that was such a hot scene to read. <laughs> unless, unless it's group sex, in which case it's not legal. Right. Um, and the thing is, is, if it's consenting, I think it's fine. The question is only, uh, is it, uh, can you consent at that age? Uh, obviously, we put an arbitrary number on it and say, you know, this is adult, this isn't. But, um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe married his 13 year old cousin, right? And, uh, oh, in Canada, in, in Canada, <laughs> age of consent until very recently was 14. Which is what? Uh, indeed, is it? it was. It, really? Yes. Wow. Hard to believe, right? 
And so Very you start to say, mm, well, if is it because it's a, homose- a homosexual act or something like that? It's no good. It's, and so I think he's um, he's not. It, it's so strange, like those little scenes where the there's the 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 cop ar- comes to arrest. Uh, I guess it's Ruth and and uh, Taverner and uh, and. The cop is super Christian. <laughs> and, oh yeah, that was yeah. good. <laughs> and he's like, "Well, you know, it's my job to be an enforcer here, but uh, Jesus and His love are are very valuable." <laughs> As I arrest you and put you in this squad car, um, I, I think he's totally mistaken about the nature of police, <laughs> and and I don't. I think he kind of fails at the institutional understanding of what police do and are and who who could who could achieve that position but i also don't care because i think that's you know whether he's historically or sociologically accurate um i think that uh it's it's cool that he has this guy who we think of as the bad guy at the beginning of the his meeting and then his sister gives that whole long story about how he's been demoted and working to help people yeah yeah. basically concentration camps right it's tons of interesting stuff going on in in this novel i I mean i'm not sure if dick did it purposefully but it almost feels like as the novel progresses we start off as Jason Tabner as the protagonist and it slowly but surely becomes Felix Buckman's story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think Evan made a similar point on yep. his podcast that it basically is a transition of protagonist, which is something you don't generally see a lot of in, uh, in science fiction, that whole, I mean, you see multiple, you see multiple points of view, multiple protagonists, but this whole, it's just like a passing of the baton. So it becomes at the end, it's really Felix's story and Tabner's kind of like, yeah, he winds up, his show gets 35 million people in the epilogue and then he just fades away. It's really Felix's story and Felix's uh, journey that really matters here in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say even like the, the politics of this all don't matter for Dick by this point in his career either, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. You know, he early, like he always was interested. He never really had much faith in movement cultures. So I, I was really interested in what he was saying about the students and the, the civil war that kind of you know, breaks out in the Nixon years in the student, you know, the, the student versus the police state, you know, very sixties, very seventies. Mm-hmm. And like the, the, the context of this novel being written. But if you go back to his earlier novels, a lot of his heroes were these middlemen within states, you know, like in the man who japed or the world Jones made um, those, those early, not early dystopian novels. They, they, all those dystopias fall apart. So they're, they're kind of the, an anti-Orwellian kind of dystopia because they're very unstable, but usually the threat comes from within. Even in Vulcan's Hammer, it's like the it's the old Vulcan computer, right? Mm-hmm. You guys right. read that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we did Vulcan, we did a podcast on that one. Or whatever. Um, and here, Buckman would be that character who would, you know, it's kind of undermining the system from within or trying to reform it, but in the end, that it doesn't go anywhere, really. It's, it's really the internal experience that matters. It's it's kind of Buckman's search for, well, all these characters search for love. But, you know, that, I think that's why it's so clearly Buckman's story. I mean, Travener is kind of a dead end in the main theme of 
finding relationships, mm-hmm. find something a meaningful relationship. I mean, right? I mean, there's te- more in that final scene between Buckman and the the guy at the gas station, station. than any of Taverner's relationships throughout the the novel. And I, th- I think I think that's part of the point. Taverner's kind yeah. of not, he doesn't he can't connect properly, and when he quote-unquote loses his identity that kind of makes that sort of metaphor manifest it's like he, he yeah. heather hart doesn't want to have anything to do with him because she, she doesn't remember him and he's kind of like lost at sea and adrift in a world yeah. where he's not 30 million people following him i think you're right i think it's um i think it's still his story it's just that his he's just got a different arc like he didn't he went through all those things learning about different kinds of love and meeting different people and he didn't change and his story ends in a tragedy it's not the happy ending where the character changes and becomes a better person he basically fails and kind of almost commits suicide in a way like he walks into his death at the end mhm yeah there's some um, uh some weird stuff uh, uh, that I noticed just here and there that I'm, I, I always like to focus in on that because I think that's kind of weird. Why did he mention that? You remember when he first um, meets Rachel, <laughs> he's in that sort of panic mode that Philip Gaddick's characters often have when, uh, <laughs> you know, they just had a big fight with their wife. <laughs> they go out and meet a nice girl. Um, and he's wait, like, which, which one is he meeting? There's no, the, I don't think there's a Rachel. Do you uh, mean Ruth? Ruth. I keep thinking Ruth. Rachel Ray. It's mm-hmm. Ruth Ray. Uh, or Ray. Yeah. Ruth Ray. Anyways, um, she, uh, she's what going to the post office and he, he runs up to her and says, I've just been drugged with a fatal toxin. And oh no, that's, um, oh. I think her name's Mary something. The girl at the end. Yeah. There's the, so many girls in this. The pot, <laughs> yeah. the pot. Uh, oh, Mary Ann Dominique. She, um, she, uh, let's see if I can find it here. She, uh, mistakes, she says, maybe he's, a, or, uh, he, she mistakes him for a student. And I was like, well, well that's weird. Cause he's like 40. Right. And well, look, but, but, I, but this, I, this is clear. The students are like the faction of anti-government forces. They're right, all labeled yeah. students. Right. Um, the entire sub. Yeah. Right. But the thing is, is, you know, this is coming out of the, the 60s and all the protest movements that are actually on on student uh, by student bodies on university campuses. Right. They don't want to go to to um, Vietnam, Vietnam when they get out of yeah. university. Right. They they are against, you know, going and killing people in a foreign land and uh, are actively opposed to it and fleeing to Canada and doing all sorts of stuff, right? Um, and there's a famous school shooting that, you know, where the National Guard shoots a bunch of students, um, who are protesting and being upset. And there's a, ch- at one point, there's a, in this period, there's a, uh, I don't know, a life, a life chain of, of people around the, uh, Pentagon, you know? bunch mm-hmm. of hippies getting together and protesting the fact that they're killing people in South Vietnam and I guess North Vietnam too. It's just the fact that he's mistaken as a student. There's a lot of, uh, like if you look at, analyze this, um, this world as a dystopia rather than, <laughs> than focus on the actual plot of the characters and their arcs and what's happening to them. But if you're just focusing on the quibbles and the automated police stations and like the fact that 40 pictures 
Yeah, what's the, what's the fourth D in 4D is what I want to know. The, is it t- the smell, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's not clear, right? Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the fact they're still using records, right? <laughs> um, it's pretty, f- there's all sorts of funny aspects to it. But I was thinking, like, if, he, if he's, if he's being mistaken as a student, um, it is less about what your actual profession is, <laughs> what you're actually doing with your life, uh, rather than student means, uh, rebel, basically, or yeah. revolutionary. And then camps, the forced labor camps, right? When we get a view of them, um, one of the, one of the, was a Christian cop? He says, Oh, they're not that bad. <laughs> you get to do this and you, you do that. And it, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. Um, but, uh, I was thinking it's interesting that the word campus and camp come up, uh, together very often. You guys notice that? Campus. Campus. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I'll yeah, the campuses of sort of became like base areas for the right. So I'm going to just read. Forces. I'm going to read the one where it comes up the most here. Um, this is starts for a year. Felix was legally in charge. This is um, the sister, right? For a year, Felix was legally in charge of one fourth of Terra's forced labor camps. He discovered that by virtue of the obscure law passed years ago, when the, the forced labor camps were more like death camps. <laughs> just, I love that it's just dropped in there, right? With a lot of blacks in them, anyhow. Anyhow, he discovered that the statute permitted the camps, the statute permitted the camps to operate only during the Second Civil War. And he had the power to close any and all camps at any time. He felt it to be in the public interest. And those blacks and the students who had been working in the camps are damn tough and strong from years of heavy manual labor. They're not like the effete, pale, clammy students living beneath the campus areas. And then he, so they're living beneath the campus. Like, what the heck? Is this steam tunnels? And then he researched and discovered another obscure statute. Any camp that isn't operating at a profit has to be, or rather, had to be closed. So Felix changed the amount of money, very little, of course, paid to the detainees. So it's actually prison, right? Uh, that's how prison works. So all he had to do was jack up their pay, show red ink in the books, and barn. That's the word it says, barn. He could shut down the camps, she laughed. He tried to speak. He couldn't. This happens a lot in the book, too. Inside him, his mind churned like a tattered rubber ball. Okay. <laughs> Sinking and rising, slowing down, speeding up, fading, and then flaring brilliantly. The shafts of light scampered all through him, piercing every part of his body. But the big thing Felix did, Alice said, had to do with the students' kibbutzim under the burned-out campuses. So these are dropouts, as well as, right, they're, they're going and living in communes, but they're all in the actual schools. It's sort of weird. Yeah, oh. they're under it. Because it seems right from the very beginning that he's, um, uh, yeah, that they're subsurface people. They're literally underground. Not yeah, just like, chuds. Like they're, they're living, in, <laughs> living in warrens. Yes. But, but as, far, as far as the word camp and campus, campus comes from the Latin campus, which means field. And the first university to use campus to describe its grounds was Princeton University in the 1770s. Mm-hmm. Fun fact. I, uh, I, I was thinking a lot about um, 
what it, what it would actually be like. And I was thinking a lot about how in Canada, it happened in the States too, but it's, it's very prominent in, in my mind, in a lot of people's minds in Canada, I think, of all the children of natives sent to residential schools. Um, basically, you're born on a reserve somewhere in Canada and they take you out of your home, uh, out of your f- family's arms and put you in it's a forced labor camp in a certain sense, right? They make mm-hmm. you do work. Um, you're not allowed to leave. Um, there's massive abuse of every kind, sexual, um, physical, psychological. Um, and it took forever for these things to, to end, like to get this horrible system that had been in place for more than a hundred years to stop. It took a ton of, a ton of time and it's not a one overnight process. So that made me think, Oh, well maybe there are people like, like, uh, Felix in the system trying to, trying to change things, make things better. Um, but <laughs> when you think of policemen, that's not what I think of. I don't think of people trying to, I know that there are good policemen because usually they end up getting fired for trying to do the right thing. <laughs> Or they get the shaft or they get arrested or something terrible happens to them. But the higher you up, go up in the chain of command, it's kind of like how, how the media works, right? You don't get hired for a job, uh, spouting propaganda for corporations. Um, if you are a person who would rock the boat at all, you're only going to get hired for that job. If you're a person who can conform and go along and maybe every, you know, uh, 15 minutes per year, you're allowed to say something true and, and that you care about, but no more than that. And yeah, I think, I think that's really possible. I think it also depends on like what country you're talking about and stuff as well, because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I hear that a lot, especially in the U S you know, that all police are corrupt. You can't have a good cop and all this stuff. And that's not my experience, but, you know, I'm from New Zealand, so mm-hmm. maybe <laughs> police forces are different in different countries. Like, I don't know enough but about institution, Canadian. But that's the thing is institutions can't love you, right? So uh, Definitely not. I'm the, just saying I don't know if it means that you can't have someone who, like, pretends to play by the rules right. to move it that is still a good person on the inside. Like, I don't know about that. Yeah, no, that's that's the hard part, right? So that's why I think it's so interesting that we have that – those. I think it was actually two cops who were, uh, one was super Christian and, you know, just trying to be kind, even though they're doing their job, you know, and saying stuff like, uh, have you been uh, offended by anything that happened so far or anything like that? It was kind of silly. And, you know, this is the relationship Philip K. Dick had with the cops too, right? When the FBI came and investigated him, uh, because his wife is a communist, um, he he ends up talking to the guy and he ends up learning to drive from the FBI guy coming yeah. to give him lessons, right? <laughs> because he's an actual human being exactly. and a person mm-hmm. and uh it's not necessarily a horrible thing. Uh Because once you make an institution big enough, right, uh, and you can't just restrict it to the, to the fucking assholes because you need to hire a lot of f- folks, there are going to be exceptions. There are going to be people who get in there and maybe they end up quitting. Uh, a lot of them will end up quitting at some point when they're given orders that are horrible, right? Um, and they don't like the kind of person they have to be. 
in that job. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's how I quit most of my horrible jobs is like, I don't want to be this guy. Why am I here doing this horrible thing? I'm bad at it. Yeah, totally. Right? I, and that happens in... Um... It's making me think of like churches and stuff as well. Like you hear of all these, sure. you know, ministers and people like that who end up deep in that institution and in a really high status position, but they absolutely don't believe what they're saying. They're tormented right. by what they're telling people every day right? when they don't believe it. And, and that's where whistleblowers yeah. and leakers and the, that sort of thing comes from, right? It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's sort of uh, becoming disillusioned with, what with 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 the with the system you're supporting? Yeah, Edward Snowden, yeah. right? He, uh, if you read his his stuff and you hear him talk, that's his stories. He he saw nine eleven happen, tried to join the army, didn't didn't uh you know broke both his legs in training, um wanted to serve another way, got deep into it, and then realizes how it's it's totally illegal and subject to massive abuse. But he broke free. Like, think of all the ones who didn't. Oh yeah, uh, but there, there are there were you know there's he's not the only person who got screwed by uh, you know there there are there are other people Bill Binney and uh, Thomas Drake and a bunch of other people who or you go back to the Vietnam the Pentagon Papers you know there's there's lots of these people who who are true believers and then are disillusioned because uh, the people running things are immoral. But on the other hand, you're right, Marissa. Most people don't yeah. do that. They go along to get along and, and they, or they just quit, right? Because they don't want to be involved in that. They don't want to be running mm-hmm. things and, and doing these horrible stuff. So it's, it's interesting that, that he has this play of the institution, um, versus the love of an individual. And obviously that's why that last scene at the gas station is so, um, interesting because well, what does the guy, what does the black man think? He thinks that's weird. I, and then w- we get <laughs> yeah. the description of what happened. Um, in his own mind, he he says, "I didn't get your note," <laughs> which I think he says is really funny. Is that it's a note? <laughs> he draws a little heart with an arrow. I know. In it. I love that. It's basically yes. just an emoji. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> So when he says, oh, I didn't get your note, I didn't understand your note the first time, but I've been where you are and I understand what's going on with you. And then something weird happened that I bet you guys didn't notice and or might be able to write off, but I keep thinking about it. Um, so this is the uh, not the first black man we've seen in the book, but he's the first one I think that we get to talk to, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. the first one is like, there's a, he says something, there's a black man or Negro walking across the street over there. The street. If yeah. you go right. and punched him, you'd go to prison forever or something like that. Right. Because they're protected now, which is like, and a, like the yeah. whooping crane. Right. That right. Is that yeah. what it says? Whooping yeah. crane? <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to look that part up. Whoops. Um, that was a really weird conversation. Yeah. Here it is. Now they entered the slums of Watts proper, tiny dark stores on each side of the cluttered streets, overflowing ash cans. <laughs> That's funny. The pavement littered with pieces of broken bottles, drab signs painted, uh, drab painted signs that advertise Coca-Cola in big letters, and the name of the small store in small. At an intersection, an elderly black man haltingly crossed, feeling his way across Sorry, feeling his way along as if blind with age. Seeing him, Jason felt an odd emotion. So this is Jason rather than um, 
Felix, right? Yep. There were so few blacks alive now because of Tidman's notorious sterilization bill. This is also something done to native people in Canada. Uh, passed by Congress back in the terrible days of the insurrection. Also, the timeline on this, Philip K. Dick's timeline, like, he's writing it in 1970, and this is set in the 80s. Like, a hell of a lot of shit happened between 70 and 80, right? A ton of stuff. Interesting. Um, the clerk carefully showed... Uh, slowed the, his righty quibble to a stop so as not to harass the elderly black man in his rumpled, seam-torn brown suit. Obviously, he felt it, too. Do you realize, the clerk said to Jason, that if I hit him with my car, it would mean the death penalty for me? Well, yeah, you just murdered a dude. <laughs> <laughs> it should, Jason said. They're like the last flock of whooping cranes, the clerk said. Starting forward now that the old black had reached the far side, protected by a thousand laws. You can't jeer at them. You can't get in a fist fight with one without risking a felony rap ten years in prison. And rightly so. <laughs> what about a white guy? You're allowed to do it to them? Yet they are making them die out. That's what Tidman wanted. And I guess that's what the majority of silencers wanted. And who are the silencers? But he just... Silent majority. Yeah, maybe. Yep, so. He, yeah, gest- he gestured for the first time, taking a hand off the wheel. I miss the kids. I remember when I was 10 and I had a black boy to play with. Not far from here, as a matter of fact. He is undoubtedly sterilized by now. But then he had one, then he had one child, Jason pointed out. His wife had to surrender their birth coupon when their first and only child came. But they've got the child, that child. The law lets them have it. And there's a million statues protecting their safety. Two adults, one child, the clerk said. So the black population is halved in halved every generation. Ingenious. You have to hand it to Tidman. He solved the race problem all right. Now, do you guys remember at the end when he's saying, uh, I thought he was asking for directions. I don't think that's what he's doing. Uh, what, what's his job? He's, uh, he's got a, he sells headphones or something. Is that right? I can't remember. You took the, the, the black guy at the gas the station the does gas ask station. for directions somewhere, I think. Yes, but, but I can't I, remember. I think he might be saying, do you, know, do you know where this place is so I can show you where I live? Uh, I can't remember. I think. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, you mean Montgomery L. Hopkins, yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, I I, ma- I manufacture inexpensive biofeedback headphones of the analog type. They sell retail for under $100. Right, uh, which is interesting for is is that for listening to music or is that for plugging into the sex internet? <laughs> oh yeah, right. It's the so porn serious. porn phone internet, porn orgy internet. It's it's I guess it could be for both. Um, but he says he talks about his wife and children. Here it is. Um, I think this is. Oh no, that's. Oh, that's there's more than one person set of persons with three children here. Control F, children up. Here it is. Think? No. Hmm. No, that's more about children and the love of children. Doesn't he say he has three children? Three. I can't remember that. Uh, it stood out to me. Um. He talks about his business cards. He talks about what he does. There's the there's yeah, the discussion there of depression. Is. Call me, the black man said. 
slowly and firmly, but also a little loudly, he said, those, these places, these coin-operated robot gas stations, I, th- this sounds like a true story, something actually happened to Philip K. Dick. You know, it's like a self-serve gas station. Oh, are, oh, I want to talk about that when you're done. Our downers late at night, sometime later on We Can Talk More, where it's friendly. <laughs> I can sympathize and understand how you're feeling when it happens that places like this get you on a bummer. A lot of times I get gas on my way home from the factory, so I won't have to stop late. I go out on a late, a lot of late night calls for several reasons. <laughs> yes, I can tell you you're feeling down at the mouth, you know, depressed. That's why you handed me that note, which I'm afraid I didn't flash on at the time, but now I do. And then you wanted to be, uh, then you wanted to put your arms around me, you know, like you did, like a child would for a second. I had, that sort of inspiration, or rather call it an impulse from time to time during my life. I'm 47 now. I understand. You want to be, you want to not be by yourself late at night, especially when it's unseasonably chilly like it is right now. Yes. So this totally reminds me of, of sort of, of the poem, uh, the Jack, uh, John Dowland poem or song. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I agree completely. It's, it's almost a soliloquy here, right? Uh, and Buckman can barely speak or he, he can't speak. That's why he writes, right? Or draws, can't even put words out. Yes, I agree completely. Now you don't, ex- he's agreeing with like what, what's going on in Buckman's face, right? He says, yes, I agree completely. This is all one soliloquy. And now you don't exactly know what to say because you did something suddenly out of irrational impulse without thinking through to the final consequences. But it's okay. I can dig it. Don't worry about it one damn bit. You must drop over. You'll like my house. It's very mellow. You can meet my wife and our kids, three and all. I will, Hmm. Buckman Uh said. I'll keep your card. He got out his wallet, pushed the card into it. Thank you. And then they have a little bit of, and it goes back to the loop music. Um, and then he's going to go get his boy. And So yeah. one of the things that we, you know, we see in this book that's very cool and also very, very weird and unexplained really is something that happens in Man on High Castle where somebody goes into another universe, right? And it's explained with a explanation about drugs. <laughs> this drug, you take this drug and what it does is it changes reality for you and the person you're thinking about. So it turns out that the sister, the lesbian, uh, the lesbian also, what she's, she's, she's a, not a lesbian. She's bisexual because she's having sex with their brother as well as women. Whatever. She's, she's a fetishist lesbian. Uh, it doesn't say bisexual anywhere in the book, but more importantly, she, but she is. Incest, inc- well, she doesn't like, she hates her brother. She's like kind of doing that out of necessity, not dude. I don't know what's going on. It's, it's <laughs> the incestuous part. Um, is confirmed when they have a kid, right? Um, but they, they talk about the relationship as you're reading it in the book. It doesn't become clear that the incestuous nature is actual actual incest, rather than they just have a weird fucking relationship and they live in the same house, right? Um, but yeah, it, it, she ends up giving her part of the house to a, some lesbian organization in some other place, and. She, 
Yeah, it's uh, and he eventually sells his share of the house to them. Yeah, right, right, and, and goes to Borneo. So, uh, forget forgetting about like the actual plot explanation. How is this fact that he's got three kids explained? Now, you could say, well, it was a mistake, right? That he forgot that earlier on in the book he he uh, said that they were only allowed to have one child for every two adults, right? For the blacks, or it could have been that the law has been repealed since then, right? Uh, but that's well, not the way. Like, so he had them back like in the sixties. Yeah, I think happens right. It, yeah, he had the children before the sterilization and and to and, and to uh, got his. Uh, Let's way. do the math on that, okay? <laughs> um, this story is set in what eighty eight, something like that. Yeah, and, so forty seven minus twenty. Is mid sixties. This is that would have been before. And so, how old would those children be? They'd be in their twenties, right? Right. Oh, but you're saying they're living at home. You can uh, meet my wife and our kids, three and all. He's forty-seven. So when would he have had to have those kids? Pretty damn young, right? So I, I think that I think that this is a very subtle sign that it's 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 him undercutting again in the way that you do. You see in all his other stuff where he's just, he, he proposes this idea. Oh, uh, the Nazis won World War II, right? And then you say, Oh, okay, that's cool. And then you find out that the reality of how it worked is not what we thought. And then we find out that the alternate book that's about our reality isn't about our reality. He keeps undercutting. It's, it's like that onion that, you know, you keep, you keep going in expecting to see the true true nature of reality. Um, the fact that Buckman doesn't respond to the fact that this guy's got three kids um, could be because, as you said, he had them before the requirement to give. I don't. I don't think that 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 that's the best explanation, especially when we have all this stuff of the love of children. Right. And the way he says, um, even in this soliloquy here, like you did, like a child would. Right. It's really interesting that it, he, he is exploring every form of love here. Um, uh, but he's also saying reality. Uh, it, 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 it's like we get, we get the bow tied off with that stupid drug explanation. Right. Uh, I mean, how the hell would that work anyways, right? It, 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 I think Evan, you said it, it's kind of like the electric ant, right? Yeah. Um, which is, which is a great story and, and super cool. But in the story of the electric ant, um, I see that as a, it's a pretty clear example of a great concept in philosophy, you know, which is that I'm the only thing that's real. <laughs> And all the reality around me is being constructed. So when I change the inputs into my senses, the data around me changes. And we, we see this in a uh, bunch of other novels, including uh, where you have uh, an, a little sticky note that basically says uh, postage. Uh, no, it says uh, soft drink stand, right? And instead of writing, I, I, I'm in desperate need of love or my heart is broken, um, he just draws a little emoji and hands it to a stranger. Um, it, yeah, but don't work, forget. How are the drugs work in like three stigmata or uh, 
Mm. Now wait for last year. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of other level. There's like some kind of subjectivity worked into the into the drugs or in face of our fathers. Mm-hmm. The yeah, that's like the reality is is the subjective one, and the drug induced is yeah. That's a drug strips away the illusion. Yeah. Yeah, and also yeah, this reminded me of okay. um, Eye in the Sky, where he's like dragged into someone else's mm-hmm. like vision yeah. of reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, they all are again and again as they as they get weirder and weirder. The the house that eats people, the theocracy. Yeah, but we, and we just have world. Yeah, we just have two. We just have the world where Jason Tabner exists, and the one where he doesn't. Although I think it's maybe kind of implied there could be others, but those are the only two we actually have any interaction with. I, I keep thinking about when Philip K. Dick went for, went to France, right? He goes to France. He gives uh, the guest of honor speech. Everybody's like applauding him, patting him on the back, saying, you're the greatest writer ever. <laughs> and then he, he gets back on the plane and gets out, uh, gets out of the uh, airplane, gets into the terminal, looks around and nobody recognizes him. <laughs> and then he's, Walking to the cab and the, the cab driver says something like, uh, Hey, what do you do, bud? And he says, I'm a writer. Uh, I'm a famous writer. And he says, Yeah, what are you written? <laughs> he says, Oh, you know, I wrote, uh, Galactic Pot Healer and, uh, A Scanner Darkly and, <laughs> and then, and then he goes, Never heard of him. <laughs> right. He's a celebrity in the same way that I, I think Evan, you pointed this out. A YouTube celebrity could be a celebrity, right? Um, uh, I, I watch all of Scotty Kilmer's videos. I love his, his, uh, his car mechanic repair show, right? And it's, it's super popular, right? Millions of downloads, millions of watches, and then you've never heard of them. <laughs> and so that kind of pocket celebrity phenomena where he, he, he says, Oh, I, nobody can recognize me. I lost my papers. Um, and then they go to look him up and he's not in the system. And, and then yeah. they get his name wrong. Like, there's so many times where you say, this could be just a, I, I, I assume almost all of this happened, right? That, that this is all cannibalized from his own life and then reworked. Well, yes and, yes and no. Okay. So, so I was going to mention this before. Have any of you seen the movie Waking Life, the Richard Linklater movie? I, I remember having the DVD. I don't remember it very well. That's the animated one. It's an animated one. Right. Yeah, me too. I think I vaguely remember watching it. Evan? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, so anyways, anyway, for any of our listeners, it's about a character who basically goes through a series of dreams and trying to get out. And at one point, he has he's actually talking to the director in, in a dream sequence. And I want to, and I actually have the transcripts. So I want to read this. Mm-hmm. And so, so he's in the dream, and the director is going to talk to him about a dream. I'm going to tell you about a dream I once had. I know that when someone says that, you're usually in for a very boring next few minutes, and you might be. But it sounds like, you know, what else are you going to do, right? Anyway, I read this essay by Philip K. Dick. What, you read it in your dream? No, no, no. I read it before the dream. It was the preamble to the dream. It was about that book, um, Flow My Tears, the policeman said. Mm -hmm. You know that one? Um, Yeah, yeah. He won an award for that one. Right, right. That's the one he wrote really fast, like flowed right out of him. He (laughs) felt he was sort of channeling it or something. But anyway, about four years after it was published, he was at this party and he met this woman with the same name as the woman character in the book. And she had a boyfriend with the same name as the boyfriend character in the book. And she was in an affair with this guy, the chief of police. And he had the same name as the chief of police in this book. <laughs> so he's telling all this stuff from her life and everything she's saying is right out of this book. So it's totally freaking him out. But what he can do, 
what can he do? And shortly after that, he was going to mail a letter, and he saw kind of, you know, this dangerous, shady-looking guy standing by his car. But instead of avoiding him, which he says he would have usually done, he just walked right up to him and said, can I help you? And the guy said, yeah, I ran out of gas. So he pulls out a wallet, and he hands him some money, which he says he never would have done. And then he goes home and thinks, wait a second, this guy, you know, he can't get to the gas station. He's out of gas. So he gets back in his car. He goes and finds the guy, takes him to the gas station, and he's pulling up to the, the gas station. He realizes, hey, this is in my book, too. This exact station, this exact guy, everything. So, yeah. And then he wrote Valis. <laughs> <laughs> it gets even weirder after that. If I'm not going to read any more out of the movie. You should just watch the movie. It goes into Valis territory, let's just say, after that. So, yeah. Yeah, I read something about that, about those names matching up. And I was like, and that's what broke his brain. Like, mm. as soon as he started seeing those, like, coincidences. <laughs> wow. There, there is a massive, massive um, number of notes and uh, letters and stuff for this novel on Philip K. Dick fans page. Um, the <laughs> the stuff I, I I won't go through it all because there's just too much. There's literally a ton of it, but mm-hmm. I would just want to read a couple of things that are pretty funny. Um, he wrote to his Swedish translator. Um, for me, the big news, besides me and Tessa getting married, is that I have sold two new novels to Doubleday. The first of which is my, is Flow My Tears. I have said to you that I considered it perfect and finished. It was neither. I had to do a total rewrite before sending it off at last. Ten rewrites. The last of which was monumental! Exclamation point. Anyhow, it is brought, uh, it is bought and will be coming out. But for me, the later one, A Scanner Darkly, which is only finished in rough, is the one now. Tears, when I reread it, is early, reread it early this year before typing it up, turned out to be sentimental. So much for what I called the perfect novel. <laughs> only in the final draft did I get it, any bite into it, any grit. <laughs> and what's so funny is that he says, he says, um, it's perfect a couple, yeah, there's, there, there's the Goran one. Uh, it's, it's so strange. Um, he says it's like his best, right? And then he says, ah, oh, it's no good. I have to rewrite it. And he says it's done. And then no, it's not done. This is actually like, this is a feature and a bug of Philip Gaedic, right? That he, he's, he left this sort of three children. The black man shouldn't have three children. It wasn't addressed, right? Like, are they, we didn't have uh, Felix say, um, those uh, three children must be adults by now because they were born in the 60s, right? The the fact that he, he he's always, always undercutting the, the b- solid ground that he had a moment before. Um, that's why he says that actually it's not about love, this book. It's about, uh, what is reality. Um, sometimes it's that. And his only conclusion is that the only thing that's real is love. Um, including this weird kind of love where you meet a stranger at a gas station and <laughs> force your love upon them. And then there's the kind of love where you have sex with a group of strangers on the phone. That's kind of weird. He says, this is love is 100% real. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I kind of want to like reread it. And uh, because he says somewhere that 
it's about the 10 different kinds of love. And I kind of want to like break it down. and Yeah. And like, wait, which of the 10 kinds? Like I was trying to think about it and I'm like, there's a lot of different weird kinds of love in there as well as like what you'd actually call love. But Mm -hmm. some are just, I don't know, taboo love. And (laughs) one of the ladies is, Oh, she, she's, she was married 21 times. (laughs) No, yeah. Is that that one of the times? 51 times. Does it say 51? Yeah. It, it's well, like 50, it was one of my, in the epilogue, she talks about her 51st marriage. For the 51st and final <laughs> time in her – no, but I guess it was it was earlier. She was uh, at that point 20 – let's see, 20. I, I, I swear – oh, yeah, 22 Derringer pistol. Okay. Um, it's weird the, the, the number of countings he does. It's, huh. Yeah, anyways, um, the fact that she's been married that many times, that's a sort of a jibe at his own, uh, marriage things, I think. Cause that, that, yeah. you have to work hard to get that. How many times was, uh, Elizabeth Taylor married? Wasn't that many, right? Eight? No idea. She was famously always getting married and divorced. Marriages. Marriage count. <laughs> seven, seven husbands, eight marriages. Okay. Because she married. Oh, she one married, of them uh, twice, right? She married Matt, Burton twice, right? I think. Right. Very Hollywood uh, phenomenon, right? Very Hollywood phenomenon. Yeah. Those marriages last about as long as those pets that she she loves. <laughs> wow. Like, I mean, Jason Travener, he he has these this serial monogamy. Well, I guess it's not monogamy in his case, but he's got all these girlfriends, all these different relationships. But he throws them out. He doesn't like. Mm-hmm. They don't mean anything, but for Ruth Ray, they they seem to have meant something. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. like, for how she describes love and her relation in grief. I mean that that's a really interesting conversation about how if you don't lose something, you're you're not you really can't know what love is about it. Yeah, and I think you said it before. They kind of right? go together. Traveler's like, I don't want the grief, so he just doesn't even embrace the love at all. So I think it makes. I sense think that's her. the whole point of the book. Like it, it sort of ties back to the policeman's tears at the end, like where he's just feeling grief for strangers and love for strangers. Mm-hmm. Like it's like he's reached like absolute empathy. Well, I think bringing up empathy, I think that's why we can't just laugh off the the phone sex orgies because this is a, another kind of Philip Dick trope that he uses a lot. The they got the black box, which isn't orgies, but. You know, it's kind of collective suffering, a collective experience. There's that whole religion in Counterclock World, and I know you guys covered that one. Mm-hmm. Right? That's kind of another kind of collective uh, spiritual experience that they're striving for. You have the Gestalt at the end of Galactic Pot Healer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot more. Um, so Dick's really, you know, he's... You know, searching for different gestalts, different ways of having this collective experience and the different works. That's what I want to say. Yeah. And then this one, I, I, there must be some kind of like a sex orgy somewhere else in one of his other books. Hmm. Maybe. Now Wait for Last Year has the drug, kind of like the drug orgies uh, kind of taking place. Um, certainly Three Stigmata, too, with the Perky Pat dolls and all that. Mm, mm. Some of that's. And like non monogamy definitely is taking place through the candy that they're chewing. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Can I talk about Jason uh, Tavern for a minute versus Jason Taverner? Um, 
this this reminded me of something that happens in Man of the High Castle. Um, so they make make a they fuck up on his his I guess booking forms, his arrest forms, and put his name in wrong. Uh, I'll just read this section. Jason started to say, I hate to correct a police officer, and then broke off at the warning look on Kathy's face. Who's doing his duty, he finished. So I'll go along. Maybe Kathy <laughs> had a point. Maybe it was worth something for the poll. I love that they're called polls. And by the way, um, the private security guard is called a cop rather than a poll, which I thought was interesting, to get Jason Tavener's ra- name wrong. Uh... Who knew? Time would tell. <laughs> That's no, a very but, Philip K. Dick line there, right? And, and, you, and you were talking earlier about mechanics and whatnot. What does Jason Taver do? He's of Kemmerer, Wyoming. There's a Wyoming reference again for a rhetoricer. Uh-huh. H39, a diesel engine mechanic. Yeah, yeah. So there you are. Da- the, there's a lot for the rhetoricer in here. Um, the quibble, that's yet another name for all the flying uh, cars, yeah. flying cars and uh rocket ships that you can buy cheap from the government or whatever. Uh, cheap used car lots, right? Uh, Mr. Tavern, McNulty said lazily, propelled him towards the door of the room, suggests beer and warmth and coziness, doesn't it? He looked back at Kathy and said in a sharp voice, doesn't it? Mr. Tavern is a warm man, Kathy said, her teeth locked together. This reminds me of how good a narrator um, our guy was. Who, who, who did the narrator? Uh, Phil Giganti. Um, oh, yeah. He was really good. He's a great narrator. And given his uh, sort of um, shame and this, this um, I don't know, this uh, personing as a narrator, he's not allowed to work anymore, I guess, because of some sexual conviction. Uh, oh, damn. That was him? Yeah, that's the same guy. Uh, which is interesting uh, considering this book, right? And all the things that Philip K. Dick was obviously guilty of. Um, Mr. Tavern, McNulty said lazily, propelled him towards the door, suggests beer and warmth and coziness, doesn't it? He looked back at Kathy and said in a sharp voice, doesn't it? Mr. Tavern is a warm man, Kathy said, her teeth locked together. <laughs> the door shut after them and Mc. And McNulty steered him down the hallway to the stairs, breathing, meanwhile, the odor of onion and hot sauce in every direction. Okay. So, <laughs> no. uh, the, what's so funny is, while you're thinking about the, uh, and this is why I think this book might be best read again uh, as a paperback. Um, while you're thinking about what people are saying, Philip K. Dick's... Um, descriptions of reality what which are very limited right this is almost all dialogue book are really beautiful i think he's just a poet of of description so many times in small little bits like Mm -hmm. a police flip-flap wobbled overhead it's red searchlight glimmering Mm -hmm. i mean it's just one sentence i can imagine this thing like wobbling over jason's head and, and the light going Back and forth in this in the crazy pattern. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this tavern doesn't exist, right? He's an error. But then they find him in the system, which is something they can't do for actual taverner. And then we never find out uh, what happened to the actual uh, Jason Taverner or Tavern, the mechanic, right? We were told, uh, or. Jason actually, uh, Jason Taverner says, I had plastic surgery, a lie, right? Well, presumably a lie. <laughs> um, I had, I had, I was, it used to be very ugly. That's why I changed. 
um, et cetera, et cetera. But this totally reminds me of, in The Man in the High Castle, Joe Cinadella. Remember when we meet him? He's the, um, he's the Italian truck driver we meet in Colorado. Who yeah. hangs out with uh, Juliana, who he uses sort of as a, a camouflage to get into, um, into uh, I guess, the Japanese zone. And then we, yeah. uh, we find out that he's actually a Nazi. Um, spy, yeah. And that that's, you know, he, his fake Italian accent is not real. Um, but what's so cool about Philip K. Dick's writing is because I think of him as he is actually a philosopher of fiction, if that makes sense. Um, and I was thinking about how that's really true in this book, especially with that weird appendix. Uh, it's not an appendix. What he calls epilogue epilogue right that he never does in the any of the other stuff that he's ever done right that, that he's kind of saying yeah there is no happily ever after that's what my mistake is right why i have to keep getting remarried there is no happily ever after <laughs> and whenever i write a book i think it's perfect it's done i'm gonna send it and then no no needs fixing needs <laughs> revision 11 more revisions I, and then he, he has his safe broken into and luckily it wasn't in there. And, and so there's never a, a, a final wiping of the hands. That's done. I'm done with it. It's always something that's able to be revisited. So when we're, we get this tavern introduced and we have a guy who actually is real for a moment in the story, right? Who did exist and we never meet him. And then we've got this guy who doesn't exist in that world. Right. However, the drug's supposed to work. Um, it, it, it not, doesn't change the perception, uh, uh, your perception that you, you are a person who doesn't exist in the world. It changes everybody else's perceptions or it changes you into another dimension, right? <laughs> so that you're in another world where you don't exist. I was thinking if you're making this into a film, you should hire like a very, uh, I don't know, like Jay Leno or somebody, you know, Conan O'Brien to play the, Jason Taverner character and just call him Conan O'Brien, you know, not that Conan <laughs> O'Brien's the most famous, but he, or you could get George Clooney, right? There, there's a good way of selling it. Get George Clooney to play George Clooney. Right? That's actually how I imagined the character through the whole book was like George Clooney. Right. He does sort of, he has that sort of, uh, style to him right? yeah and where yeah. everyone's just like oh my god you're so right. like magnetic and charismatic and just people just falling in love with him right and then and then you put him in before george clooney was a famous you know movie star uh you know man about town world traveler he was you know the son do, of, do, doing those coffee commercials yeah and he was you know he was just he was just another shitty actor who had a handsome face right and maybe he knew how to take a good photo, which is one of my favorite scenes in that book where the where the girl is going to take his, like, fake ID photo. And she's right. like, what are you doing with that, like, weird lit up right. look? Right. <laughs> and the fact – notice he never he never tries to show that he's a, he's a great singer by actually singing. <laughs> right. <laughs> he just says, I desperately need this this record to show that I'm – I'm a real person. Yeah, he, he doesn't actually sing himself. He yeah, like he says the record. Which and is- then what's the name of the song that he his most famous song is like? I give no fucks. Oh yeah, it's really good. What is the name of that? Let's see if I can find it. Uh, there's a lot of swearing in this book. I noticed that's something that's sort of absent. Um, 
there's a lot of I see a lot of fucking in here. Uh fucks. No, it doesn't come up. Give a fuck? Too many fucks. I have no fucks no, left to no, give. No, no, it, no, no where nothing fuck up. Ah, uh, yeah, that's, that's right. It. Right, and that's the name of his most fa- his most recent hit. Nowhere, nothing, fuck, fuck, describing his actual situation, right? So that meta phenomena where he, 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 there's a guy who's Jason Tavern who doesn't exist, but he's a warm and a nice guy. And, and I hadn't thought of Taverner as a name until you take away that ER. And when we hit that point in the book and we get Tavern, (laughs) that does change his name quite a bit, right? It makes him. Uh, much more distinctly non-named. It's it doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a name. It sounds like a fake name, right? Like Clem Fandango, <laughs> just doesn't sound like a real name. Whereas Taverner does sound like a real name. Um, what do we make of Felix's name? Because hmm. he's got a he's got a man in his name. What's his name? Felix's Buckman. Buckman. Right. Right. So is he bucking the system? I guess so. And his sister is Alice? Is that her? Yes. Yeah, Alice Buckman. Alice Buckman. And his spelling is... A-L-Y-S. Yeah. He's really really doing something very interesting in this book that you see in a lot of the other stuff, but it's because that massive focus on love, the fact that you're in a dystopia and... Uh, that it has a whole history. I think it it feels a lot richer than it would, um, if it was about something a lot more concrete, like like he usually does, where it's it's some government trying to overthrow another part of the government, uh, like in yeah, uh, so many of the other ones. I'm like Vulcan's hammer. I'm like, eh, I like yeah. parts of this, but. There's way more layers. The to this theme, one. the theme here, I think, is is pretty good. Because I love it. Like, the, I think this is going into my top five. Like, I have to reread. I think my that top that's where I would put it too, is. right? Yeah. I think that's where I would put it too. And I didn't expect that. I thought it was. Uh, I didn't. I had no expectations that this would be a good one, given that I don't like his later stuff. Yeah, especially after that phallus that we just read, I was really like, "Oh boy, mm-hmm. here we go." But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was afraid too. But on the other hand, I've always wanted to read this one because of the the Waking Life bit. Because Waking mm-hmm. Life is a movie I like, and they, so every time I watch it, it's just talking about Flow My Tears. I, I kept thinking, yeah, I got to read Flow My Tears sometime. Read all this other Pilkey deck. I really need to buckle down and read this one. But it's late, Dick. So I don't know. And finally, finally, thanks to you guys, I finally got to it. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. really, I did appreciate. That's the late Dick problem. It's really only two novels that really. I mean, it's it's Valis and Divine Invasion, and uh-huh. of the final novel, the Transmigration of Timothy Archer is is good. Mm-hmm. It's it's mainstream, but it's oh cool, not bad like Valis. I'm so glad. I was so afraid that but after we came out of all those old ones, good. Yeah, our friends from Prolix Eight. That's a '70s one. We can well, we can build you was written back in the '50s or '60s, but. That's a good one too. Um, what else is in this period? I wanted to um, to point out that uh, this is I I pointed it out before, but it's just interesting. Uh, there was a story. I'm going to see if it's still there. 
Orpheus with Feet of Clay. Have you got that? You you must have done yeah, that one, Evan, right? Okay, so that's the one. Yeah, it's not. Orpheus with Clay Feet, maybe, is how it is. Um, that's the one that I, I, I was... I was searching for it a long time. It says, yeah, it's on the Wikipedia entry. Orpheus with feet, clay feet is a science fiction short story by American writer Philip K. Dick, originally published in 1964 in Escapade magazine. I've been looking for that for fucking ever. The story has a self-referential time travel theme and was published under the pen name, quote-unquote, Jack Dowland. Yeah. Um, so that's as close as he can to say... Um, say he's, you know, his, his hero. He has, he has many heroes, but that's, that's one of them, right? Is, uh, this 16th century lutist. <laughs> um, and uh, it says on the plot summary, main character is Jesse Slade, a board man living in 2040 who visits a time travel tourism agency for a vacation. That sounds familiar. The agency offers him a trip to the past where he can act as the muse for a famous artist of his choice. Slade chooses to inspire his favorite science fiction author in the 60s, Jack Dowland, <laughs> who is said to be universally acclaimed as the greatest of the three master science fiction authors of his time, the others being Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. <laughs> Slade travels to. So that one might be a good one to do, even though I, I, I really want to find the actual magazine. The problem is, is I don't know if it actually exists. I think it might have been sold to Escapade because I've looked through every issue, unless it was a special issue, and maybe Escapade's not the right magazine. The short story, it definitely exists. The story exists, but the the public, its first publication might not exist. If you you following me, obviously it was first published somewhere since it exists. But is there an audio version? Yeah, I'm sure there is because everything. Then we need. Then we need his. to do the story clearly. But I, 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 I want I know, to I know find you, the original I know magazine because I'd like to see that context and see his if his name is actually on there and you know in that in that context of a escapade was like a um, it was like a competitor to Playboy, so it would it would have probably a lot of um, fake biograph- biographical information. It's a slick, or was a slick. So I want to hold off on that one, but I did want to uh, point out that this this uh, pseudonym was in used supposedly in uh, the publication of Orpheus with clay feet. You should spoil that story completely because it's pretty good. I, I'm hoping to read it. So um, you, you want me to see it for you? I can tell you where it goes. I I, I want to talk about uh, King of the Elves because. Um, I sent. I think I sent you guys the uh, the new Rene Aubergenois reading. Did you guys get that on Twitter? I didn't get it. Okay, I I tweeted it. I thought I tweeted it at you guys. Maybe I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Rene Aubergenois. You guys know who the he is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Although? you did. You tweeted at us. Yes. Yeah. So he's a really great narrator, um, audiobook narrator, but he's more famous as a movie or TV actor. He was. Uh, Odo, the security officer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But he's a, he's a great, um, actor. And so doing, doing narration, uh, he's just really good at it. Very rich voice. He died recently, I think is why it got. Yeah. He just did. He just did. Yeah. Anyways, um, that's about an hour long and, uh, I've never read it, but, um, King of the Elves. Evan, you must have read it. 
Obviously, yeah. And what did you it's think? A nice one. Yeah. yeah, I like that story. Actually, it's it's kind of it's about men. I think it's about mental illness. Good. <laughs> uh, it's, I, you can read it literally as a fantasy novel, but or a fantasy story. Yeah, there, and I think that there's might, other stuff going on there. There's I think that might um, nicely line up with the the uh, Francis Stevens we did earlier. Remember? Um. Oh, maybe not everybody was on that one. Yeah, I don't remember it. Well, that that, that would explain why you don't you don't remember. Let me look. The Francis Stevens. What what one am I thinking of? When the elves. Oh Marissa, right, uh, you were there, Paul. You were there. I, I, I remember the I, name I, of it now. I I was. Um, I'm scrolling like down. The weird call. Elf trap. The, yeah. The elf trap. Right. The elf, elf trap. trap. There you go. That's why I can't remember the name yeah, of it. Did, it's right we, in the title. We saw, it was on the other side of Nepal. So forgive my taking corrections to remember it. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's come out yet, but oh yeah, it did. Okay. So yeah, we recorded that back in September. Right. Anyways, I was thinking that would be a, a good one to do because the audio's out there right now and it's not public domain. Pretty sure that uh, the um, King of the Elves. I, I think they were going to turn that into a movie as well, and I don't uh, think it happened. It a few times. Uh, that died, I think. Yeah, and it was going to star um, Paul Giamatti, I believe. Who? Oh, he would be good. He would be good enough. Yeah, he's a. Philip K. Dick stand-in, right? Yeah, I I I could definitely see him, yeah, doing a, a Dickian sort of character. Yeah, called a character. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there? Some, weren't there some rumors about a uh, Owl in Daylight, Paul Giamatti, or did that really? Yeah, happen? I think I think he was. Um, I think he was, uh, or is a Philip K. Dick fan. Beyond Fantasy. I should have a copy of this. 1953. It must have been renewed. Yeah, uh, I will. I will get the original and find the illustri- original illustrations if they exist. There's one interior piece. Says, would that make a good follow up, Philip K. Dick? I know Marissa's trying to get through those final novels, but I mean, we keep avoiding them. We finally knock one up. Well, knock uh, off a couple. Uh, uh, good news time. is, yeah, we're we're moving. Fullbox Eight's cool. good. Have you done that one? Which one? Uh, Frolic? Our friends Frolic Yes, I think so. I'm pretty sure we done that one. Friends from Frolics. Uh, we're running out of novels, I think. Scanner Darkly? Uh, we haven't done Scanner yet. I... No, I wrote a review of it, so I know it really well. Um, but no, I haven't done that one. We could do that. All right, here it is. Giamatti wants to act and produce in the album Daylight, in which he would play the author Philip K. Dick. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. Biogra- biographical, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, we did Frolics 8 in January 2017. So anyway, we the late stuff, Connor. Yeah, well, yeah we talk, but we talked about how it was a pre-maze of death book, easy access to drugs, connections to uh, the three-body problem and the man in the high castle. We had... We, we, uh, we we went to some yeah you know, weird tangents on that podcast. Oh, Maze of Death, yeah, that's the other one. Maze, Maze, Maze oh. of Death. Yeah, I like Maze of Death. Don't even bother with Divine Invasion. I think I think you're pretty much done then with. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even read it. Well, there's lots of Jesse, short stories still. Jesse even Jesse did they even did a cartoon little cartoon thing for our friends Pollock. How did yes, you get Jesse with the, with Donovan's drug bar? No, I know. I, I I was pretty sure we had done it. I just. 
Um, it's been it was, it was the it titles was sometimes elude you, but yeah, it sounded familiar. Almost three years ago, God. Wow, no, that that's fly. not my art. That's somebody else's art for Mace of Death. No, Friends of Fallout Eight. Oh, is your art. okay. Sorry, why did I think Maze of Death? Because um, they all <laughs> friends. So, so, so we've been doing this, this uh, Philip K. Dick stuff for almost four years now. At least I would say. Because twenty sixteen, be. I, I, I know it's we longer doing, than that. We're doing stuff in twenty sixteen. I so, think yeah. I was in, living in Germany when we started. Wow. So Which and we're we're near, we're near here near the end. Here's uh, if, if you haven't seen this, Evan is pretty. My my tears a, are flowing, although I'm not uh, really smooth. What I'm, is this? I'm a pretty great artist, Greasy. I must say. <laughs> Donovan's <Yeah>. Drug Bar, <laughs> Federal Bureau of Personal Standards. It's another dystopia. Well, that's that's when he goes to the bar for the drugs with the gear. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> with a kid. Yeah. Oh my god. We, 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 yeah, we had some things to talk about that. Yeah, the poor kid who can't pass the exams. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Uh yeah, so uh the here's my argument for why we should do King of the Elves next, besides it's available as an audiobook for people. Um is that the King of Elfland's daughter is the last thing on the schedule before our uh, an opening spot. Uh, that's a Lord Dunsany. So that might be a nice way of pairing them up. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? Have yeah, I convinced I'm, you? I'm, 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 from, from Dunsany Elves to Dick, Dickie and Elves. Oh, that would yeah. be, be uh, February 20... No, it would be March. March 1st. No, be, yeah, it would be March 1st. Oh, three, oh, one. Because next year is a leap year. Can I convince you, everybody, in for King of Elves? Yes, of course you can. It's okay, okay. Deck. Okay. Well, I, I Marissa bet- wanted to do uh, novels, but I, I don't want to do two novels back to No, back. no, I just didn't want to, like, leave it two years between novels. Right, right, <laughs> like right, 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 right. Yep. We, we got sidetracked for a long time. Well, there's a lot of stuff to sidetrack you. Yep, exactly. Which is fine. I just wanted to, like... King Come back to the novels a little bit too. Elves by Philip K. Dick. <laughs> All right, so let's look at the schedule here. Um, Paul, next next show is on a Saturday. Yep, Flight to Forever, Paul Anderson. Right, excited. Uh, I was going to say Philip K. Elves. It <laughs> <laughs> <That> works. Uh. <laughs> Um, and then that's Flight to Forever, which is, uh, I have an audiobook somewhere. It's pretty short, I think. Many Colored Land. Evan's in for yes. that. Um, Evan, uh, I think Paul, you're going to have to sell that to Marissa because I have not, I have no idea what it's about. Which one? The Many Colored Land by Oh, Julia no, I'm out. May. I'm out for January, all of it. Okay. Uh, Who's it by? Julian May. Julian May. All right. I don't remember being on this, but it's always really late when we get to this point. So. <laughs> Jesse he hijacked Paul you Marissa. for this. You don't even remember. Well, he's it's like four o'clock in the morning or whatever. Did you put that Prince Alberic on? Because I'll, I'll record it if if there's no other audio version. Uh, I haven't looked for another audio version. Did you? I, I did I put I, I put, put the PDF up, but I didn't schedule it. 
All right. Schedule it. I can, I can record it when I go to Taiwan. I'll, use, I'll try the Yeti. My yeah, yeah, new. yeah. Um, that'd be cool. Um, I'm going to send this to everybody um, because so, we need. If to you want to do a LibriVox recording, do you just put your name on some list or? Uh, there's your stuff. Otherwise, I'll just do it and throw it on YouTube. Uh, you can put it on LibriVox. Um, but usually they want to, if it's a short thing like yeah. this, they want to put it in part of a collection. So what I would suggest is you record it and then um, do the intro and outro for LibriVox and then try and shove it in there somewhere if you want it. Because otherwise, it, if you put it on LibriVox, it exists for... Nonsense. I, I don't really. Want it's not it. super bureaucratic. It, it's a volunteer organization. So, um, the only thing they they have like some standards. Basically, you have to say this yeah. is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, <laughs> please visit okay. LibriVox. LibriVox.org. Right. Recording by Evan Lamp. That's right. And then sometimes people put the date and the place they recorded it, but you don't have to do that. Um, and then you do at the end. The same thing. Sometimes if it's, uh, you know, they want to break up the file, but um, I don't think it's that hard. Yeah. All right. um, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it up and I'm going to try and keep my shit up forever, but I, I will die. And then uh, unless it's somehow it, everything goes away, stars going to explode and then everything made of art on the earth is going to be gone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Evan. Plus, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so I like reminding my students of this from time to time. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff, right? I was doing the geography of religion, and you know, asking them. So, what are some of the big questions that that religion asks that that people would want answers to and they so say they, they, they forces are very important factory and they, they think about death that's the thing those kids yeah they're not they had to kind of lead them to it <laughs> you're leading them to death what's, what's, the, what's the suicide die? rate for, for <laughs> chinese students is it higher or lower do you know they uh what's it? are are hmm. chinese students more likely to commit suicide than the other kinds of students i i would guess it's slightly less I don't know. I didn't see the stats on it. Yeah. Um, well, maybe those stats are not easily. Available. No, there there are. I've I heard news about suicides in Taiwan quite a lot, and they're mm. under the same kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. I just it might not get in the media too much here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like there's. I the time I lived in Taiwan, there were several stories of like. Marissa, you said you're not in for the time period, flipping out and killing themselves. You're not in for January, Marissa, you said? No, I'm in, uh, I'll be away in New Zealand. I have, uh, stuff. I have you on for She by H. Ryder Haggard, but I can remove you if you're not available. Yeah, I don't think I'll be, I can't even remember. It says the 9th, it? uh, it's, uh, She Who Must Be Obeyed. It's a H. Ryder Haggard adventure novel set in Africa. Really interesting audio drama. Hmm. I don't even remember talking about that one, but but yeah, I'll put your name on it. Um, I I remember thinking about it, but I don't remember putting it up. And we're gonna do "I Will Fear No Evil." Have you read that, Evan? Nope. That's uh, Heinlein. That's the one where Uh, I haven't read most of Heinlein's stuff. I'm ashamed. 
Uh, it's the one where he um he he he's an ancient old man who's dying, and his lovely young nubile secretary uh, gets in a terrible car accident, and her brain is broken. So he has his brain put into her body, and he becomes a heterosexual woman. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I, I mean, I, I remember a while back then. I wonder what I'm going to think about on this reread. It's going to be interesting. It will be. I think Heinlein's totally worth yeah. reading. But 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 I think I'm the one who put this on there because I was thinking of something. I mentioned to you, oh God, this reminds me of the world where I will fear no evil. So I think I'm responsible for this on the well, schedule. I'm, I've been pushing this book for a long time because it's one of I think his la- last later ones that's worth reading. Um, and it's it's long, but it's not super long. And it's, uh, Heinlein, Heinlein is really, he is a giant in a way I think greater than Asimov is. Because he, he really does do science fiction. I, 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 I think being it, he's more provocative joking. in your fiction makes you, I mean, I don't hear lots of people talking a lot about Asimov's fiction. Even, I mean, there's no, there's not that ardent passion like, oh my God, Asimov is so great. But you get Heinlein detractors and defenders, you know, ready to go fisticuffs in the halls of Worldcon. So you know, hmm. Hmm. yeah, I, I, I feel that. I grok that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well played. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, he might have been, been he might have that's, had some uh, really bad January, books, but so. you know, that's until January. Yeah, but end of January means Marissa's not uh, in. When when are you back? The next one I show you is Pygmalion Spectacles in February. Yeah, I'm back in February. I think I'm flying on the 26th of January, actually, All my right. flight. All right. um, but that's fine because Heinlein isn't, like, my favorite. Well, you didn't clearly well, grow up reading the Heinlein Juvenile, <laughs> did you? Well, did, did you try reading Glory Road and you noped out of it, or was that Misa? That sounds, I don't, it, that sounds I, like a Misa thing, I think. It, it, yeah, that might be Misa. Marissa like, would be like, like uh, this is trippy. <laughs> Which one is that? Glory Road, did you say? Yeah. Yes, Glory Road. That's, I that's, wouldn't mind reading some trippier stuff of his. That, that, that's his pastiche of fantasy, of the fantasy quest. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I will it's definitely fine read Fine for the first half, and then the second half is boring as crap. Yeah. Uh, that's the problem. I do get a little bit bored with his story. But it's also good to have an excuse to read them force myself. Dude, to. that's what <laughs> podcasting's for, right? It's, it's, <laughs> otherwise, would you do your homework at all? If you, if you, uh, I mean, uh, the thing is, is you want to do your homework, right? This is, exactly, this is yeah. fun homework, but it's much easier just sitting around watching Netflix and I don't know, eating potato chips or whatever. Um, you need an oh, excuse okay. to go out hiking. You need an excuse to go visit your family, right? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, this weather has been horrible, so that's why I haven't gone photographing anything because it's gray. It's it's gray skies and dirty gray snow. That's not really appealing to me. Well, you won't like living in Vancouver. It's all gray skies. It's not all the time gray skies. Holy shit! Did you guys see that picture of my mom's? Uh, my mom's. Um, my mom's. My s- sister's daughter's dog. <laughs> yes, I saw. Wasn't that great? Did you, did you guys see the, the video I retweeted of the school bus sliding down a, a road here in Minnesota yesterday because Mm-mm. of the because of the freezing rain? It was sliding sideways down the road. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. 
please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. That's great. I think it's great. I just rewatched Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is, I think, Quentin Tarantino's best film. It's so subtle I compared read to his other guy's stuff. Books. He's a Elmore, Elmore Leonard is amazing. Yeah. You should read Elmore yeah, Leonard. Yeah, he's got three volumes in the Library of America. I he's also kind of a hack, but he's he <laughs> when he isn't a hack, he, especially like um, those those weird, not super late crime novels, but middle late crime novels. Lots of good ones. They did a whole show um, based on one of the short stories. Uh, it's called Justified. Um, I think Graham Yost was the runner of that, and he was, uh, I think he was a producer on the Watchmen series. I think that's, that's why I saw his name last. Yeah. He's, Elmore Leonard's the one who, he employed a researcher to help him write his books. So he'd be mm-hmm. like, tell me something interesting about South Carolina <laughs> or something like that. And the guy would go, you know, the library and study up and get up. I use the internet and give him a whole bunch of notes. And then he'd just write a crime novel set in that place and throw in That's some a job. bits. That's a job for a historian. What's it? Uh, oh, you being a, a researcher, researcher for a famous for a crime writer. writer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it worked out really well and sometimes it was less good. But the thing is, is his writing, uh, sentence by sentence is quite beautiful. Um, he doesn't use, uh, adverbs. He's always, um, doing it through dialogue. His characterization is terrific. As you can see in, if you watch Jackie Brown. Yeah, I'm curious how, like, I haven't, you know, obviously I haven't read the source material. And when I first saw that, I just assumed it was Tarantino writing. You know, yeah, it's his only thing. adaptation, really. I mean, the rest of them yeah. have been homages to other movies or his own complete work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll download this tomorrow. Uh, again. Yeah. Um, so, Marissa, did you get that link? Because I'm going to pull the one going into your Dropbox. If You're going to what, sorry? Uh, um. If you download that now through the public link, I'll delete the one that's going into your Dropbox. Okay, but will that take? How big is it? It should be a lot Am faster I- down than up. Um, it's two point five two gigabytes, so it's not small. Okay, because that might screw up our call for a little while. Yeah, give uh-huh. it a shot though. But uh, download it should be a lot faster than up. Okay. Because it, it's probably propagating to your Dropbox now unless your Dropbox turned off, in which case it will fuck up the uh, the podcast, now that I think about it. Um, the reason I sent it to Marissa's Dropbox is because we had a little Twitter thing, and I mentioned that I was watching it. Yeah, that's awesome. I really want to watch this movie. My, it's very um, interesting. Husband's been to see it twice without me at the movies, wow. which is 
Yeah, which is normally fine, apart from um, Quentin Tarantino is one of my favorites. So I was like, you saw it without me? And then he went and saw it again without me. Damn. <laughs> Were you off, like, hiking the mountains at the time yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah, I was busy. And he's got, like, uh, you movie. know, like, film friends mm-hmm. who are oh, super into film it. So. Film friends. You know, it's fine. But I was like, damn it, I've got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so my internet is currently saying one hour left to download. <laughs> to download? Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, we okay. can do it after the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to delete the one that's in your Dropbox because you have the public folder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. And I'll cancel this one and yeah, I'll download and it after. Yeah, and maybe turn your Dropbox off until. Oh, no, no, you won't have to. If I delete it out here, I think that'll should. Yeah, there we go. I think that'll do it. So that's oh, yeah, his that's first super- first movie outside of Harvey Weinstein. Remember, uh, all his movies were Miramax movies before. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Which is interesting because um, he's uh, he's he's changed studios, and so he had to renegotiate his his uh, stuff. Which basically is, I get to direct my fucking movie and edit my fucking movie, you fucks. <laughs> which, which is why it's a long movie, right? How long is it? It's like two and a half hours, something like that. Um, and it's very, uh, I haven't finished it yet, but it's very uh, well-paced, even though it's super slow. Um, he's just a, he's a master filmmaker. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. I like he's feeding the dog, interesting. Like, yep. you're watching him feed the dog, and it's like... And you can tell, yeah, oh, yeah, this is one of those scenes where he's going to set up something later. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. my favorite kind of movie where there's, like, small moments where, you know, it means something. Like, mm-hmm. I hate, like, big, fast-paced action movies that are just... There's so many happening. scenes like that where it's it's just... It's, it's just lock down the camera, sit there for a while, let the uncomfortable coughing happen for 15, <laughs> 15 seconds. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's really he's got something. I love it. it. It's it's so strange to see that too because there's so few people out there who who can sort of put their signature on something and you say that was done by that person and we really mm-hmm. appreciate it in the film industry. You know, that's yeah, that's so true. It's almost all, all those, generic. All those committees make everything kind of the same. Yeah, and you you <laughs> understand why it's a you know the factory process. It's a style, you know, it's like mm-hmm. make everything. I mean, that's the comics too, right? That's the way they do it in comics generally is you try to look like what the character looked like before and the way this frames are set. That's why when you get somebody like Alan Moore and he he's doing his thing, it it comes across differently. Yeah. And, and wait, wait a minute. Some, you mean movies aren't run by strange paralyzed men in glass booths? <laughs> Uh, that's a reference I'm not getting. Mulholland Drive? Uh, I, I haven't seen Mulholland Drive, I don't think. Oh, wow. That's, huh. it's been a long yeah. time. I remember when it came out, but I, I don't remember it very well. Is that the one with Nick Nolte? Yes, among other people. Okay, it's I probably saw it. Lynch, so it's not a movie. Wait, wait. Uh, Nick Nolte. He's not in that, is he? Mulholland Drive? You're thinking of, uh, Mulholland Falls, I think. Oh, I'm mm. mixing up my. Oh, and drives the Lynch one with uh, uh-huh. Naomi Watts. 
Yeah, no, I don't. I'm, that's one of the. Oh, no, Robert Forster's in Mulholland Drive, not Nick Nolte. Yeah, he is. I, yes. I, 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 I stuck Nick Nolte as the detective. Yeah, wrong, wrong, my bad. Yeah. That's Mulholland Falls. I never saw that. Yeah, I, I've seen almost everything by Lynch, but I, I'm not 100% sure about this one. It's been a while. Yeah, for a while, that was one of my favorite, favorite movies. Mulholland Drive was? Yeah. It oh, does make cool. me want to drive in LA again. As as horrible as driving in LA is, you know, I mean that that and uh, what's my call? What's the um um ah the Lynch movie um blah 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 um Paul was speaking in tongues for a second there. I'm speaking in tongues because I'm trying to remember the name of the movie and I can't think of it real quick. Um, did you did you say the Lynch movie? It's a Lynch movie. Um, right, right. Um. No, no, not Blue Velvet. Um, da, 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 da. Blue Ho- Lost Highway. That's oh, the Lost other Highway. Movie. That's the oh, other that... movie that makes me want to drive in LA because of the of the scene on uh, Mulholland Drive. That's so funny, Paul, because that's like one of my favorite movies ever. And um, I was trying to talk to someone about it the other day, and I also the name of it just totally <laughs> left my brain. And I could see the I could see the Lost Highway like on the poster, and I knew what I was thinking about, and I couldn't think of the name again. It's, it's it so weird. Second, yeah, to connect, reconnect to like, oh yeah, the, yeah, it's it's. It's the one where where you have the two characters in swap places. <laughs> it's the like, one with the high the It's the lost one, the one I can't yeah. remember the name of. Lynch must do something to our brain, infect our brains and just like mess it all up in there. Um, Dave, because David Lynch, yes. Yeah. There was a, a great uh, little tweet yesterday from the – it was the Popeye movie. You remember the one with um, – and this might be for, before Marissa's time. The one with uh, Robin Williams is Popeye. I, I remember that one because my parents wouldn't let me watch it because they didn't think it was appropriate for me. And they were correct because there's a really great transition scene that somebody said, this is very Lynchian, where um, he's looking for his sweet pea. Everybody in town is like celebrating something and he's like, sweet pea! And he looks around and he looks around and, and there's a super slow fade. <laughs> like, I take I don't know, five seconds to transition from the town full of people, everybody celebrating, and him upset that his sweet pea's missing, and then it fades to like the the sea and and the the night and the town's empty. <laughs> it's like wow, that oh, is super man. David Lynch, you know, where where he just says, okay, it's time to look at some pine trees now. <laughs> wow, uh, funny stuff. I, I don't who do, who directed that movie. Pop the Popeye because I, I remember when I saw it as a kid I was like wow this is a weird movie. <laughs> is it Robert Altman or am I wrong? Am I really just off base? Uh, yes, it is Robert Altman. That okay. would explain it. Yeah, he's kind of a weird guy too. I like Robert Altman movies. He, he's made a lot of good ones. I, I just remember the ar- movies. I just remember the argument with my parents. Like, oh, but it's it's like the cartoon, right? And my parent, my parents never wanted to take me to take movies anyway. I didn't get to see a movie in a the theater until my older brother was old enough to take me. That was 1983. I've told you the story before. The second movie I ever saw in the theater was Return of the Jedi. Having not seen Star Wars or The Empire Strikes Back, although having the Star Wars Death Star, which meant all sorts of weird things but the first movie i saw in the movie theater was metal storm 3d the destruction of jared said poor boy (laughs) has this affected me maybe i don't know but who played ludo that's my question paul smith 
Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's. Uh, what am I remembering him from? Oh, he was in Dune. Of course, he was Raban. No wonder it's very Lynchian. <laughs> that explains a lot. Yeah. 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 Six foot four. Okay. Well, we are slightly off topic here. Maybe yeah, maybe we actually should do maybe um do a podcast. You want Just your tears think- to start flowing, Paul? What's that? Yeah, my yeah, my 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 tears will have to start flowing. All right. I finished both the audiobook and uh Evan's podcast, so I'm I'm prepped. Yep, I, I, I listen to both. Yeah, I kind of want to hear what you guys have to say. I don't know if I can say more than what yeah. I've already said. You did speak two hours on the subject and went in very strong detail. I was but I, I don't know if it was four, because I often would split those up, remember? I would do like Let's four or five. Save it for the podcast. Save it for the podcast. All right. So I started recorders. Um, I've got the. Oh, yeah. I was. Uh, I sent you guys the. I did, didn't I? The. Um, yeah, the complete text on um, sickmyduck.nayrod.ru website. Very okay. handy. Um, all right, I'm ready. I guess we know how to do this, right? It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Here we go.